Revelation chapter 1. Last Sunday we began our study in the book of Revelation. We saw that Revelation comes from the root word reveal. In Greek it is the word apocalypsis. It means to remove a veil or covering so as to reveal what lies behind. And yet for many people this book is seen as one of great mystery. I quoted last week one writer who said at the beginning of a commentary, readers of the book of Revelation are either mesmerized or mystified by it. The mesmerized come up with such startling interpretations that the mystified often conclude that sober-minded Christians should leave the book well alone. Last Sunday, I gave a basic introduction and some principles which will guide our study uh, through this amazing book. And just to review uh, quickly, this book was written by John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John. It was written on the Isle of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea between Greece and Turkey, about 65 miles away from Ephesus, uh, the closest uh, city to uh, Patmos. He was there, we are told, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is found in verse number 9, chapter 1. <coughs> we now know that various islands in that region were used by governors as a place to get rid of people who were being socially disruptive, and apparently that's why John was there. This book is a letter. It is written to seven churches in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were the seven major churches in what we know today as Turkey, then known as Asia Minor. Uh, they are connected by a semicircle road, a semicircular road um, that ran through the interior of the province. And they were the major postal stations along the route from the coast working its way into the interior. This book was written uh, somewhere between late 64 and 67 AD. That is after the outbreak of persecution at the hand of Nero, Caesar, and prior to the war which led to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what John describes prophetically in this book. Uh, John clearly states in verse number one, that the things he is writing about must soon take place. Um, and then he adds, if you look in verse number three, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now, seven principles that uh, I gave last week for studying Revelation. First of all, the Revelation was written to reveal, not to conceal. Secondly, it is a book to be seen. That is, symbolism is critical to this book, and I'll talk more about this in a minute. Third, Revelation, the book of Revelation, only makes sense in the light of the Old Testament. If you don't know your Old Testament, then you will have really a difficult time with Revelation. Number four, numbers are critical uh, in this book. Number five, it is a book written for churches under attack. Either physical threats, that is persecution, Spiritual deception, false teachers have come in, or material seduction, where people have sort of bought in to the mainstream culture. Number six, something I mentioned already, it concerns what must soon take place. And lastly, the victory belongs to God and to his Christ. Um, and let me just add another principle today, which I did mention last Sunday. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal things which must soon take place. It is not to satisfy curiosity about the future. That is, in revealing, it is seeking 
to create or to spur God's people onto particular actions. Here it is to give them hope, but it is also a call to holy living. So it isn't primarily eschatological in theological terms, it is primarily ethical. John wants the people to whom he is writing to take to heart what he is saying and to live in that light. We will see in verse number three that he tells his readers that they are to take to heart what is written. Let me just say something quickly about symbolism and then we will go on. Uh, The meaning of a symbol in scripture is not whatever we choose to make it. And John did not create these symbols out of his own imagination. So, for example, in this book, he presents Christ as a lion and as a lamb. Not because he thinks these are pretty and cute images, but because of what a lamb and a lion means. Not, well, I know what a lamb is. A lamb is nice and meek and, you know, it can be easily hurt. No, what it means in Scripture, in the Old Testament. The lamb which was used as a sacrifice. The Passover lamb. A lamb was slain at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, at the tabernacle and at the temple. Uh, The sin offering. He isn't just coming up with these images out of his own imagination. Rather, he is using symbols which have their roots in the Old Testament. I think if you understand, if you know the Old Testament, you will see where John is headed in his writing. Now, if this is true about symbols that we do understand, what about the ones that are even more difficult? I think we should understand two things, and I I hope I can convey this clearly. Um, Symbolism is important. First of all, All of creation is symbolic, if you think about it. That is, creation is the revelation of God. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, supremely, but God has revealed himself in creation. Therefore, creation reflects his glory. It says something about God. It does so symbolically. When we say that we are made in God's image, in that sense, we are symbolic of who God is. And secondly, Symbolism is analogical. It is not realistic. It isn't, the book of Revelation isn't a code book that this equals that. That, oh, when John says this, he really means that. He is, in fact, using symbolism. That, and in symbolism, something can refer to more than one thing uh, as a symbol. Like poetry, I think symbolism in the Bible is tended not to be specific, as we might like it, but rather to evoke a particular response and to evoke a particular image in our minds. Let me read you a a quote from someone who wrote on Revelation. Many people interpret, and that's in quotation marks, the Revelation as if each detail of each vision had a definable meaning which could be explained in so many words. These commentators are rationalizers, deficient in the mystical sense, Symbolism is a way of suggesting the truth about those spiritual realities which exclude exact definition of complete systematization. systematization, I'll say it. That is why so much is employed in worship. The symbol is always richer in meaning than any meaning we can draw from it. I think this is critical to understanding the book of Revelation, and I hope it will sort of open up as we go through. 
Today we will look at the prologue and the greeting and the doxology at the beginning of this book of Revelation. Let's read the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Before writing what one would expect at the beginning of a letter, and we saw this in 1 Corinthians, in the ancient world there was a certain format that you follow at the beginning of the letter. First of all, who is writing it, to whom it is addressed, and then a greeting, and then oftentimes a prayer of thanksgiving to the gods for the health or the well-being of a particular person. We will get to that in verse number four, when John says, you know, that this is John to the seven churches, grace and peace to you. Before we get to that, though, there is this prologue. Uh, and the prologue, in, in many ways, spells out what this letter is. First of all, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. That is, it is the unveiling, a disclosure of God's purposes. It is revealing what must soon take place. But you should notice that it is a revelation that is given, if you wish, by God the Father, and it is mediated through Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of Jesus that he in turn reveals to John. But this, this book is much more than simply sort of a roadmap to what is going to happen into the future. It isn't that. It is a prophecy of the things that must soon take place. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals that he is Lord of all, including human history. And we will see more of this in a bit. Back to the matter of what must soon take place. There are two things worth considering. First of all, I think this really argues against any futuristic interpretation that somehow John was looking 19 or at least where we are now, 19 centuries plus down the road at something that would happen. He's not writing about things that his readers would never see happen in their lifetime. He is, in fact, writing to them something that will happen, and it will happen to them. And he wants to prepare them for what is about to happen, what must soon take place. The second thing I would point out to you is that the opening statement here in verse number one presupposes the biblical philosophy of history. And what is that? It is this, that God is Lord of all. He has an all-embracing plan for his creation. He rules every bit of reality according to his plan. Because if you think about it, how does God know the future? How does God know the future? Because technically speaking, and not to get too technical or too philosophical, the future does not exist. It hasn't happened yet. It's not as though it exists somewhere out there and, and we're working our way toward it. It does not exist. So how can God know the future if the future, in fact, does not exist? I mean, does he have some type of magical binoculars? Is it because he's omniscient that he knows what is going to happen? No, I think it is much more than that. God knows the future because he planned the future. He is in control of the future. Things will happen according to his plan. He will bring these things to pass. 
And even though the future technically does not yet exist, it is absolutely certain and secure because the Lord of the universe has planned it. He will bring it to pass. As the angel says to John in the last chapter of this book, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And they did. We see that John testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what we find is John testifying and following the example of Jesus Christ. He testifies to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus testifies, and John now testifies of what Jesus has testified. Um, in this sense, he is following in the footsteps of Christ. And this is sort of a critical theme follow, uh, flowing through this book, that Christ's servants bear witness, and in that sense they follow in his steps, and they are those who bear his image. There's a twofold identity, if you wish. We are like Christ because we bear witness. We are like Christ because we bear his image. And then in verse number three, blessed is he and blessed are those. This, this is the first of seven beatitudes that we find in the book of Revelation. And seven, again, is an important number. The first of seven blesseds that we find. But did you notice anything um, in the form of the blessing here in verse number three? Blessed is he who reads and blessed are those who hear. Does this remind you of anything? It's the reading of scripture in public worship. As we have had people today read us from the Old Testament and the New Testament, one person has read and the rest of us have listened. So John intends that this letter that he writes, someone will stand up and read it and blessed is the person who stands up and reads it. And blessed are those who hear it and those who take it to heart. The early church saw this letter as a book of worship. And it's really tragic that in the century since then, it is seen more as this sort of mystical roadmap to the future. It is something that is to create praise and worship in our hearts. More than that, we are to do what it says. We are to take it to heart. Remember, James says that we are not to be hearers only. And I think John must have also, or James must have also had public worship in mind. We're not only to hear when Lonnie reads to us, when Emily reads to us. We're not only to hear what they read to us. We are to do what it says. We are to take it to heart and to put it into practice. Why? John tells us the time is near. The ancient world was going through turmoil. And the Christians needed something that would keep them stable during a time of dramatic change. The end of the world was coming. Not the end of the physical universe, but the end of the world as they knew it. An era was passing away. The time of the Caesars, those who were the bloodline of Julius Caesar, was coming to an end. The old order, the old world order was passing away. And Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The city of God, the temple of God, the heart of Judaism was going to be leveled and destroyed. The world was passing away. John says, listen, 
and take to heart what is written. Then we have the doxology and the greeting. You look at verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. John writes to seven churches, and there can be no question that he is writing to seven literal churches, actual churches that existed in Asia Minor. As I said last Sunday, there were more than seven churches in Asia, but John chooses to address these seven, and with seven having significance in the Bible. Let me pause here a minute and, and sort of step aside and just talk about something for a minute. I know that as we go through the book of Revelation, I will face time and time again a dilemma, a tension. And that is, should I tell you the wrong interpretations of the book of Revelation and then say, no, 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 forget that. This is what is the right, the right interpretation. Um, why, why shouldn't I just simply tell you what is right? Well, there will be times when I will say this is what is said and it is wrong and I will correct it simply because I think it has affected the church in this age whether or not we accept those interpretations. And one example we find right here, and that is the notion of the seven churches. And that is, for the last 150 years or so, people have taught, in this country particularly, that these seven churches actually represent seven ages of the church. That this is church history in microcosm. And that when you look at the problems of these seven churches, which are spelled out in chapters two and three, we'll get to that, that it sort of is, is a graph of, of, the, of the nature of the church during that time. This is wrong. John is writing to seven actual churches in Asia Minor. One of the things I think that is so harmful about this wrong view, besides that it's wrong, well, there are at least three assumptions that come into place. First of all, that the book of Revelation deals with all of church history, and it doesn't. It deals with things which must soon come to pass. Secondly, this view of the church shows it ending up in defeat and apostasy, because you will see when we get to Laodicea, the last church, they're a mess. They are the worst of the seven. And if, if that's the nature of church history, at the end of time, the church is going to be in dire straits and in a terrible situation. And as a result, the church in this country, I would say for the last century, has taken on a very defeatist attitude. It's all over. We're the church of Laodicea. What can we do? Well, we're not the church of Laodicea. Okay? There was a church in Laodicea. It had real problems, and John addressed those problems. And thirdly, I, I just think that if people think they live in the last of the age of the church and, and that it is Laodicea, then, then there is really no hope. No, John is writing to seven churches in seven cities about things that they understood, matters of real importance to them. But the number seven does have symbolic importance. Uh, in scripture, it indicates qualitative fullness, perfection. 
10, by the way, points to quantitative fullness. That is completeness in that sense. And so we need to understand that what John writes here does apply to us. It is important for us to learn from it. But he did write to these seven specific churches uh, about the problems that they were having. Just parenthetically, uh, in one of the commentators, uh, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading, he pointed out that the Apostle Paul only read, wrote to seven churches. If you think about the Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, the rest of his letters were to individuals. And I don't know how much we should make of that. But John, I think, chooses these seven churches because they have problems, but also because seven is an important number. He gives his greeting, grace and peace. And what a wonderful summary of what God has done for us. Everything that God has done for us can be found in these two words, grace and peace. Grace, the favor which God has shown us, which we do not deserve, and peace, being reconciled to God forever. And where does this grace and this peace come from? Well, now we have John presenting us with a Trinitarian uh, greeting, if you wish, a Trinitarian uh, a greeting. Grace and peace from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. That is, from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come, that is God the Father, and from the seven spirits before his throne, that is the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the rule of the kings of the earth. You'll notice that something is different here. While it is a Trinitarian greeting, the order seems somewhat wrong to us, because we expect that the order would be Father, Son, and Spirit. This is certainly what we find in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, he tells us that people are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But here we have the Father, the Spirit, and then the Son. One might ask, why this order? Because obviously John knows what he's doing. This isn't a mistake on his part. Why does he write in this way? Well, it is supposition, but I think it makes sense. John is writing in terms of the order of the construction of the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem is still there. We begin with God the Father in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. And then we move into the holy place, and there we find the, the lampstand with the seven branches. We will see as we go in Revelation, that represents the Spirit. And then we go out into the courtyard, and in the courtyard we find the altar, we find the sacrifice. That is Christ. And thus, John... I think at the very beginning is giving us a very strong hint of how he is going with this book. He is think, thinking in terms of the order of worship that God created in the temple, a temple which is soon to be destroyed. And so he greets them in the name of the Father and the Spirit and of the Son. What does he tell us about each of these members of the Trinity? Well, the Father is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That is, God is eternal and unchangeable. He should be seen as being, he who is, as one who is eternal in the past, who was, and who is to come. He is not at the mercy of his environment or an environment. He is not defined by external conditions. All things exist in terms of him, not the reverse. 
of particular interest, I think, to John's readers is the expression, who is to come. And we might be puzzled by that because, wait a minute, I, I didn't think it was God the Father who was coming. I thought it was Jesus, you know, the second coming. If you're going to divide up the responsibility of the Trinity, it is Jesus who came the first time in the Incarnation. It is Jesus who will return in the second coming. Well, we will see as we go through this book. If you look at Scripture, God is the one who comes time and time again to deliver his people and to judge the wicked. And to John's readers, God is about to come again. And he is going to shake things up and Jerusalem will be destroyed. More about that, though, as we go through Revelation. Then the Spirit, God the Spirit, the seven spirits before his throne. Uh, This clearly refers to the Holy Spirit. I talked briefly about it last week, but again, this will sort of unfold as we go through the book of Revelation. The NIV has a footnote, by the way, which reads the sevenfold spirit. The seven spirits is a way of expressing the fullness, the perfection of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that the Spirit is seen as being before His throne, that is, the throne of God the Father. The work of the Spirit in the church is seen in the light of God's authority, His on the throne, and His majesty. The Holy Spirit isn't just simply off doing willy-nilly, it is done within the context of who God is. By the way, something to put in your notes or in the back of your mind, the word throne appears 54 times in the book of Revelation. The next closest book in the New Testament, Matthew, five times. So more than ten times more than the closest one, Revelation has the word throne. This is a book about God's rule. God is in control. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. This is what John wants his readers to see. And then we come to God the Son the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, let's, let's look at the first, the faithful witness. We must see this, again, in terms of scripture and not in terms of our culture. The word in Greek is the word martyr. And sadly enough, both the word martyr, now in English, and witness have taken on meanings and connotations in our culture far different than what was intended in scripture. If you look at the Old Testament law, the witness is the one who works to enforce the law and to assist in its execution, even to the enforcement of the death penalty. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 17. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death. But no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. But now for us, witness and martyr have taken on entirely different uh, connotations. A martyr is someone who is executed rather than someone who executes judgment. Someone who is persecuted rather than someone who prosecutes. I don't know, this has never happened to me, but have you ever been a witness in a case? Uh, I never have. I From what I watch on TV, I don't think I ever want to be a witness in a legal case. Because when I think of a witness, and I want to be a faithful witness, like Christ, I think, well, I'll tell the truth. But then at the same time, I'm worried about the lawyers. What kind of tricks are they going to play on me? Are they not going to let me say what I want to say? 
Are they only going to try to get a particular answer out of me instead of letting me tell the truth as I see it? It has been said that in our time, in our country, in our culture, a woman who is raped, who tries to prosecute the man who rapes her, undergoes a second rape when she's put on trial. She's not actually on trial. He is, but she ends up being put on trial. So when we read about Jesus being the faithful witness, I think we focus on the faithful part. Yeah, Jesus will tell the truth. But the witness part, we, we sort of take a much weaker view than what John intends. The witness is someone who participates in justice. He isn't just up there to tell his story. This is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God, I'm going to tell you what I know. No, this is someone who is a participant in justice itself. So when we think of Jesus as the faithful witness, we need to think in terms of Scripture and not the American judicial system. At the same time, we need to keep ourselves balanced. Because particularly in this book, Jesus will be seen as the one who was put to death. The lamb that was slain because of false witnesses. And this book is filled with martyrs, those who are executed for being witnesses of the truth. And so, being a witness and being put to death does have its part here in the book of Revelation. But here at the start, as John writes, I think he wants to tell his readers, Jesus is the faithful witness. He's not helpless. He's not a a helpless witness. He is one who will execute judgment. Secondly, he is the firstborn from the dead. And the emphasis here is far different, I think, than what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. Rather, it is what we hear on the day of Pentecost. And again, if you read Revelation by itself and just sort of come up with your own interpretations, who knows where you'll end up. Read Revelation and then read the rest of Scripture. What does Peter say on the day of Pentecost? God has raised Jesus, this Jesus, to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so when John says, the firstborn from the dead, his readers know, yes, he is both Lord and Christ. The faithful witness who executes judgment, he is the firstborn from the dead, Lord and Christ. And then thirdly, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the universal king now, in this age. He is sitting at his father's right hand until he puts his enemies under his feet. In case we didn't get it with the faithful witness, or with the firstborn from the dead, John now spells it out. He is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Remember what Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension? All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is why the early church was persecuted. Jesus Christ, by the gospel, asserts that all things are his. That he is Lord of all. And that people have one of two choices. Either they will submit to his authority or they will be destroyed by his judgment. 
We don't live in an empire as such. We don't live in the Roman Empire. But can you put yourself in the place of our brothers and sisters in the first century? Ruled by an emperor who was considered divine. Surrounded by all sorts of false religions. And people say, well, what is it that you believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Oh, really? You're saying your God is in charge of our God. If you wish, your God can beat up our God. Your God is over Caesar. This wasn't only blasphemy, this was treason. And the church was persecuted as a result. Now, you know what? The church could have played it smart. They could have withdrawn into communities out in the middle of nowhere where no one would bother them, where they could say anything they wanted day and night and you know, no one would bother them. But by proclaiming the gospel that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ and the ruler of the kings of the earth, they invited persecution and that is what it ha- and that's what happened. But at this point, I mean, John, in, in, in talking about the person of Christ, I think is almost overwhelmed and, and breaks out into a doxology that we find in the second half of verse 5 and in verse number 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It is, this is who he is. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. But again, this isn't simply something that John makes up. He doesn't sort of wax poetic, if you wish. Do you notice this language? Are you familiar with this language at all? Does this ring a bell at all? Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 19, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is something God has been telling his people all along. The difference is now Christ has come and by his sacrifice, he, by his blood, he has now made this possible. He has purchased us. If you wish, the Passover night, the Exodus, everything has happened in Christ. And now we are a new people, a new kingdom. And John says, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why has Christ done this? And we need to keep reminding ourselves and as we go through this study, the purpose of this book is ethical. It's what we're supposed to do. Why has God made us a kingdom and priest? So that we may serve his God and Father. Not simply for ourselves, it is that we might serve him. Lord willing, next week we will pick it up at verse number 7. And here the theme of the book is spelled out as John writes to these churches and seeks to prepare them for the things that must shortly take place. Let's pray together. Our Father, we Thank you for this book, a book that in some ways is terrifying, certainly mystifying to many. We thank you that you gave it 
to John to be written. May we, by your Spirit, come to understand it as he writes to these seven churches as they prepare to face things they could not have anticipated. Official persecution from the Roman Empire. Material seduction by those who aren't persecuted. And false teachers coming into the church. For a variety of reasons, I fear that we have had a very pessimistic view of your working in the world. We have not seen Christ as the faithful witness, as the ruler of the kings of the world. May we see him in that light as we go through this book. And may it lead us to worship. We thank you that you have called us. May we serve you, our God and Father. I thank you that we could meet together today for worship. I ask that your grace and spirit would go with each of us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and open your hymnals to hymn number 31, which we sang earlier. This time we will sing the doxology. It's in italics at the bottom there, uh, to the tune of all creatures of our God and King. service just to give out the financial report. Uh, We'll have a longer meeting uh, in the future. Our benediction is the one that Moses was to tell Aaron, the priests are to proclaim. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.